Amen. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to our morning text, which is in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21. Deuteronomy, chapter 21. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 192. Any children here, uh, kindergarten or first graders, you're welcome to go to Children's Church, if you'd like, during the sermon. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 to 21. And let me read the passage, starting at verse 18. So we continue to work our way through Deuteronomy. It says in Deuteronomy 21, verse 18, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Well, another challenging text from Deuteronomy. (laughs) Although maybe some of you as teenagers are like, I don't know, I... had my moments. Yeah, so, you know, so what do you do with, with texts like this? It's, it's, it's difficult. You know, I, I was thinking how we've been so bombarded the last month with this story of Casey Anthony. And, you know, whether you think she did it or didn't do it or the jury made the right decision or didn't make the right decision, I mean, we could probably all agree that, that the idea of a parent taking the life of their child is, is ghastly and really disturbing. Um, so, so then to you know come to scripture like this, and here's parents uh, whose child's being executed for disobedience. It, it it makes it hard to understand. You know, I think it's passages like this that sometimes make the Bible feel really far away, that, that make it hard for us to relate to as modern people. Um, at best, at worst, perhaps we're we're cynics and skeptics and. You know, people look at passages like this, perhaps, and they say, "This is why I don't want to have anything to do with any religion, because it's religion that gives people a kind of divine justification for uh, hurting others, or, or abusing others, or harming children like this." So, how do we deal with a passage like this? Well, I, you know, I'd like us to slow down and look at it, and think about it, and really wrestle with it. And, uh, you know, it, it could be perhaps that there are things wrong with our culture and the way we see these kinds of passages. I, I'm not assuming our culture has everything right. I mean, you know, when it comes to children, I mean, our culture is the culture that maybe, maybe we look at this passage and we go, oh, my goodness. But we're also the culture that, that legalizes the taking of the lives of children while they're in the womb by the hundreds of thousands. So I, I'm not so quick to just punt, you know, on morality and let the culture tell us what's right and what's wrong. I want to wrestle with God's Word. So let's look at this passage. And and just to kind of help you get a framework for reading this passage, uh, I'm going to just suggest kind of three movements within the passage. There's the crime, if you want to call it that, situation or crime. And then second, there's the trial. And then finally, there's the sentencing. So just kind of a classic courtroom progression. Uh, There's a crime a trial, and a sentencing. And, and just to kind of throw that out there as a way of, of 
organizing this passage and our thinking about it. So let's just look at each phase of this in this law about the disobedient son. First of all, the crime. It's there in verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him. So let's stop there. Here's the situation. It's a stubborn and rebellious son. So now this this child is guilty of um, breaking one of the Ten Commandments. It, I don't know, any kids here can tell me which of the Ten Commandments it is? Yeah, number five, honor your father and mother. Uh, you know, the way I remember the Fifth Commandment is think like the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and mother, like take your hand like this and make a salute, you know? <laughs> That's the Fifth Commandment, honor father and mother. And I would like to suggest that this is not a situation of some kid who disobeys his parents once and then has to go before the the firing squad. But what we have here is a situation of a of, of pr- probably an older child, maybe we would call him a teenager, who has adopted a posture of uh, settled resistance to his parents in rejection of their authority. In other words, this is someone who has decided this is how I'm going to be, this is my pattern, this is my chronic response to my parents, is rejection of their authority and disobedience. You know, look at the language again. Look at verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, that that pairing of words, stubborn and rebellious in, in Hebrew, it's more than just stubborn like, it's not just like a New Englander. You know, we New Englanders, we're stubborn, right? And we're, we're independent. It's not just like a personality quirk. We're talking about open rebellion against one's parents. That, that phrase, stubborn and rebellious, it's a phrase that's used most of the time elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to Israel and her response to God by idolatry and, re- and breaking God's laws. Sometimes that phrase, stubborn and rebellious, that phrase, stubborn, is used to describe enemies who go to war against God's people. So there's an idea of open hostility. Uh, sometimes the word is used to describe leaders who are corrupt, who take bribes, who pervert justice, who don't defend widows and orphans, but defend whoever can pay them the most. So, so the picture here, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, this law is not about a cranky toddler who didn't get enough sleep and is now acting up. All right? This is not about a hormonal preteen who's feeling you know, frisky, and decides to be a little obnoxious toward her parents. That's not the idea. This is somebody who is in a settled state of rejection, who has gone the other way, who has decided that the parents don't matter and the parents cannot reason with the kid, no matter what. You know, it says there, verse 18, even when they discipline him. So again, there's been a pattern. There's been discipline attempted. They've whatever, spanked the kid, they, I, I don't know what they do, <laughs> took the keys to the donkey, you know, whatever. <laughs> they, they're like, you know, you, you can't have your eye sling or whatever kids played with back then, I, I don't know. But they've disciplined, they've tried, they've tried this, they've tried that. No matter what they've done, it hasn't worked. And as a result, it's not just the kid has, has ignored the parents, but he's begun to corrupt his life. You know, look down at verse 20. They shall say to the elders, we'll get to this in a minute, but this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. So the child, as a result of saying no to the parents, has taken a self-destructive life path that that is 
an embarrassment to the family, and it's just outright the wrong way. So that's the situation we have at hand here. This is not a case of child abuse or parents just kind of flying off the handle. We, we have a situation of this child rejecting parental authority. My guess is probably all of us here or most of us here have had some kind of experience with this kind of child. Whether we've had a child like that, you've had a kid who it's like you, no matter what you did, no matter what you said, you couldn't figure out how to break the code and the kid just went the wrong way. And maybe the other kids went the right way, but this kid was the one who, even though he was raised in the same family in the same conditions, seemed to just be the black sheep who went the, the opposite direction from what God would want. Maybe, maybe you've n- known a family that's had that. Maybe you're that kid. <laughs> you know? You're like, that's me. I'm the one who my parents told me what to do, and I know I just gave them the hand and said, no, I'm going my own direction. But, but, but whatever it is, we've seen that. And it, it can be very tragic. It can be heartbreaking to families. Maybe the, the kid shuns the, the way they were raised, and they, they do become a profligate and a drunkard or an addict and, and destroy their lives in that way or go down that path. Maybe they, they enter into just fleeting relationships, one person after another, uh, you know, fathering or mothering children out of wedlock, and it just it kind of grows and expands and, and becomes so painful for the family. May, maybe it's, um, you know, a person who's just kind of lost in life. They never settle down. They never forgot what they're doing. Uh, and it's, it's painful to watch, and it hurts families, and uh, it divides families because, you know, some people in the family are the doves and some are the hawks. They all have different ideas of how you should respond to this person, and money is spent and money is wasted trying to help the person. And it's like, wow, this, it's so tragic. So I think that's the picture here. It's, it's not just a kid who decided to disobey his parents once and the parents fly off the handle and haul him off to the, the town. But this is a person who has adopted a lifestyle of rejecting God as expressed through that parental authority. They will not listen to their family in any way. So what do you do with a kid like that? What do you do when the kid is completely done listening to parents and obeying them? Well, here's what you did in ancient Israel where you had a theocracy, where the law of God and the law of the land were the same thing. And in this situation in Israel, what was to be done is this, and this is the trial. So now we're going to move from the, the crime or the, the situation to the trial itself, and that's in verse 19. His father and mother shall take hold of him, they shall bring him to the elders at the gate of his town, and they shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us, he is a profligate and a drunkard. So now it's become a public situation. The parents lay hold of the child. That, that word is to seize or to grasp. We might say arrest. You know, not in a full modern sense of like you handcuff some Miranda rights, but, you know, in the basic sense of arresting someone, like stopping them, grabbing them, hauling them somewhere. And so the parents need to lay hands on the kid and bring this kid to the court. And we have a courtroom scene here, the elders at the gate. Now, you have to remember in ancient Israel, the gate was where you had judicial matters settled. That was the place of civil and criminal trials. The elders were the judges. So to say that you're hauling the the kid before the elders at the city gate is like saying, I'm taking the kid to the judge in the courtroom. It's it's the same meaning. 
So this kid is now standing trial in some kind of public sense. And I think perhaps this is where we might begin to struggle with understanding this passage kind of from our modern cultural vantage point because suddenly this situation with the kid has gone from being a sad situation, a tragic situation, a painful family story to becoming a kind of public situation that involves crime and punishment and judges. And we're like, wait a minute, how is that? How is disobeying your parents now a crime? (laughs) That seems to be a jump that's being made here that maybe we don't track with. And I think part of that is is that is that we don't we see problems within families as therapeutic issues that it has to do with emotions and personal dynamics and certainly it is a therapeutic issue but we often don't see that it is also a moral issue that how you relate to your parents isn't just a matter of emotions and dynamics and interpersonal issues which it is it's also a matter of right and wrong. In other words, it's wrong to disobey your parents. It's wrong. <laughs> and in Israel, right, where morality and legality are all combined in a theocracy, it's now a public issue to be settled in a court. So, so that's where you bring that sort of Israel being a theocracy piece into it, and that's why it's dealt with this way. But whether you're in Israel or not, it's a moral issue. It, it's a right and wrong kind of thing. You know, maybe think about it this way: why, why is why is honoring your father and mother a moral issue? Why is that? Why does it carry that kind of weight? Why is it not just sort of an emotional issue or developmental issue, but it's really a moral issue as well? Well, let, let me kind of sort of throw an idea out there and then back up and try to explain it a little bit. But I'd like to suggest that obeying your mother and father is a moral issue because parents and especially fathers, are God's representatives to their children. Parents, and especially fathers, are God's representatives to their children. Okay? So, in other words, the role a parent is supposed to play in a child's life is is one of representing God to the child. The way God has hardwired human experience is such that that he wants to communicate who he is to children by their parents. That's the plan. That's the way God designed human experience to work. Uh, so, you know, think about it this way. A little baby is born. A miracle has happened. A child has come into the world. And that child has not just come into the world. The child has come into God's world, which means that the purpose of that baby's life is the same for all of our lives. We all share the same purpose in life. You know, what's the meaning of life? It's really pretty simple. The meaning of life is to love, know, worship, serve, enjoy our Creator. That's why we're here. And whatever you do, whatever gifts you have, whatever talents, whatever life situation, we are here to love and know and serve and enjoy and delight in and find our ultimate happiness in our Creator. That's why God made us, to reflect His glory and to worship Him. So now here's a question. How does a baby find that out? All right. So that's the baby in God's world. How does it happen? And I guess, like theoretically, it could happen a lot of ways if God wanted it to. God could have designed reality so that at age five, every human being has a vision. And God appears to them and says, Hi, I'm God. I made you. 
And uh, let me tell you what it's all about. He could have done it that way. God could have set up an institution. He could have established a school or something that everyone has to go through. Instead, what was God's design? Parents. So that as kids came into the world, mother and father would represent to the child who God is. They, they would be responsible for teaching the child. You know, you just put a bookmark here, a finger here in Deuteronomy 21. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The verse that Jesus said was the greatest commandment in the whole Bible. So you want to know the top command that summarizes in some ways the whole Bible. Here it is. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. There it is. The purpose of human life. Ultimately, to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. Now get this. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you all walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. So parents have a unique responsibility for communicating who God is and what life is about to their children. They have to teach them the Word of God. You see this in the New Testament too. You know, uh, in, in Ephesians uh, chapter 6 where it says, Fathers, you know, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Uh, the requirements for elders in the New Testament. You know, one of their main requirements for being an elder is you have to know how to manage your family well. And so you have to be good at representing God to kids and to your family, in, if you have kids, in order to do that for God's church. So, so this is so central to what parents are called to do. But it's not just teaching kids. I think it's embodying God's character to children. So it's, it's, it's embodying godliness and love and care and discipline and holiness. And so that kids not only, you know, kids not only hear things, but they watch us, right? They learn far more by watching us than what we, we say to them. And so it's important that as parents, we, we embody that for our kids. So God's plan is that kids would see Him through their parents, that, that that's the parental role. And that's why this is so critical. I mean, think about it. Parent, you know, kids think, especially little kids, they think their parents are like God. It's like, my daddy's the strongest man in the world and he can fix anything. You know, mommy's kiss can heal any wound. You just kiss it, mommy, and it'll all, it'll all feel better. You know, that kind of, wow, that kids have toward their parents, especially little kids, they have that toward their parents. I mean, there's a reason God calls himself Father. That's what God told us, told us he is. He put fathers and parents in our lives, and then God's saying, I'm like that. That's who I am. So it's all part of God's design for the family and for children. That's why honoring father and mother is a moral issue, not just a, a personal life functioning issue, but it's a right and wrong kind of thing. Because it's ultimately about responding to God. So there's a message there for, for kids. You know, any of you kids here, any of you are still in your home listening to your parents, uh, you, you have a real responsibility. God wants you to listen to your parents and to do what they say. If you love God, kids, if you love Jesus, one of the most important ways that you can show Jesus that you love him is by doing what your parents say. It's really simple. Just honor your parents. 
And not because you always agree with your parents, but because you're honoring God who's represented by your parents. And so that's why we do this. There's also, I I think, a responsibility there for parents too, right? It's not just what the kids have to do. That means we as parents, and I I find this honor your father and mother concept even more challenging for me as a parent because it means I have to be someone who really models what God uh, wants my kids to see. It's a huge responsibility. It's daunting, right? And, And unfortunately, we live in a culture where the idea that parents are here modeling and having authority over and shaping and guiding kids here, our culture has done this. We flipped the whole thing where kids are what it's all about and parents are just there to meet the kids' whims and give the kid whatever they want and make the kid happy at all costs. You know, the only thing we can do is make the, never make your kids sad, never let them be upset. You know, and we do everything to make our kids happy. But you know, parents, our job isn't to make our kids happy. It's to show them the way to be holy, which, of course, is the way to true happiness. It's through holiness with the Lord. And that's our job as parents. So it's, that's why we've become these helicopter parents. You know, you've heard that phrase. You know, parents who are hovering in on their helicopters, you know, ready to fish their kids out of any problem or anything. That, you know, that's why we've become the parents who, who sue the, the teachers and fire the youth pastor and uh, ball out the coach on the field because our kid, you know, had their feelings hurt. You know, because... Heaven forbid anything happens to the kid. And if the kid wants to skip church for five months because they want ice time, you know, well, whatever. Kid's got to be a winner. Kid's got to be a superstar. Like, wow, we've got it so backwards. Because rather than teaching our kids that God is the center of the universe, we're teaching them that they're the center of the universe. And that they can never have it. Everything's got to be their way. And it's not, you know, it's not fair to them, really, set them up that way for life, let alone for eternity. So, so we have a responsibility as parents here. So, going back to the trial now. All that to say, honoring father and mother is a moral issue. And in Israel, where you have a theocracy, where the law of the land and the law of, the, and the law of God are coterminous, where they're the same thing, and where enforcing the law of God is what the, the civil powers do, and it's all one and the same, this is now a public issue. This is now a covenant issue. We have somebody within the covenant community of Israel rejecting the covenant of God. And so it matters to everybody because everyone's affected by it. So you have this trial, which then leads to a sentencing. So there's the crime, rebellion, rebellious, stubborn. There's the trial. And then there's a sentencing, verse 21. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Still, it's just a tough verse. It really is. To stone the child to death. I'd like to point out something. Who does the stoning? It's the men of the town, not the parents. So this really is actually nothing like the Casey Anthony story, or at least what she was accused of doing. Who knows, but... You know, she, this, is not the, this is not a parent gone wild. This is not child abuse. This is the community taking responsibility for another covenant member and saying, you have rejected the God of our covenant and this is what the God of the covenant requires within the theocracy of Israel and its unique framework. You see that? So, so that's 
That's what's really going on here. And the idea is, again, to purge evil from among you. You have somebody who has firmly decided that they will not worship God. It's as if there was uh, somebody in Israel who had firmly decided they were going to worship Baal and were going to promote the worship of Baal throughout Israel. It's like this is God's holy people. This is a holy land. You can't do that. And so God calls for a purging of evil so that all Israel will hear of it and be afraid. So do you see the progression? A child confronted by the parents and then to the elders of the town, which then go to the men of the town, which finally causes all Israel to hear and to fear who God is. So there's this this purpose in this situation connecting the private situation to the public issue of causing people to fear God and see that, that He needs to be honored. So honoring father and mother... This is deadly serious business. It is deadly serious. It's not just a a private issue of family dynamics. This matters to God. And even today, even in the New Covenant era, where, where the law of God and the state have been separated, so we're a pilgrim people. We don't live in a Christian state. We're not called to establish a Christian state. We're called to live as strangers and aliens in the world. And, and there's you know, all kinds of issues around that. But... Um, but basically, we're not in a theocracy. Let's just put it that way. And so we're not called to enforce these things. And yet, God is still God. His law is still His law. And honoring father and mother is still deadly serious. And so I just want to you know, maybe encourage you, especially kids, but especially teenagers, because you know, it seems what's in view here is a little bit older kid, an older child. I just want to encourage you teenagers to to really work hard at honoring and obeying your parents. And sometimes that's really hard. Because, you know, when you're a little kid, your parents are superheroes. By the time you become a teenager, it's like, I think they're super villains. And, uh, or at least super lame. Uh, you know, so, uh, my, you, know, you know, how do you obey your parents when you think they're, they're making bad calls and, you don't, and you're trying to find your own way and, and there's this distance between you and parents you know, how, do you, how do you obey them in that situation? It's, it can be really hard. And I just want to encourage you, you know, don't swear at your parents. Don't trash talk your parents. Just do it, okay? Your life's really not that hard, okay? You, you live in a really nice place. You have an eye, everything. Like, just do what they say. Your life isn't that hard. You know, stop being a martyr. And just do what your parents say. Obey them and honor them and respect them. And if you can't do it, and if you look at your parents, you're like, yeah, but I'm so mad at them, then just remember, you're doing this to honor God. You're saying, yes, Mom, not because you think what your mom has told you to do is, makes sense. You're doing it because you want to say yes to God. You want to honor Him. And this is deadly serious. Look how seriously God takes this. You know, it just asks, you know, some of our teenagers here, if you were living in Israel, would you be in danger of being stoned? Even if you're not in danger of being stoned today, God still takes this seriously. It's deadly serious because it's about honoring God who's, who's put representatives in our lives as parents. Parents as representatives. And let me just throw out one more thought here. One final thought. If honoring earthly mothers and fathers is this serious 
how much more serious is it for all of us to honor and obey the Heavenly Father, of whom parents on earth are but the dimmest, most imperfect reflections? If it's that serious with our earthly parents, if that's how much God invests in this command and this concept, and all that's supposed to point to Him, how much more deadly serious is it that we honor and obey God? I would like to suggest that verse 18 through 21 that we just read is a picture of the, the spiritual and moral story of humanity. This is how, in a little nutshell, this is how we've responded to God. You see it within Israel. God was Israel's father. Often God calls Himself Israel's father in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 2, God says, I carried you through the desert like a father carries his son. God was Israel's father. He made Israel. He ruled over Israel. Israel was His son. And Israel rebelled against God. That phrase again, stubborn and rebellious in verse 18, that is stock Old Testament language for Israel's rejection of God's covenant. So Israel is the stubborn and rebellious son. And, and finally the judgment day came and, and judgment came upon Israel. And Israel went into exile. They went out of the land of Cana. They, they were killed, in a sense, as the covenant people and were no longer God's uh, under that covenant. It was broken and, and nullified. So, so, so you have this imagery, except at a national level. Israel is the stubborn and rebellious son. And you can even kick it up a further level and say, this is the story of humanity. Do you want to understand the spiritual, moral history of the human race? It's all right there in those little verses. God is the Father. He made us. He made Adam. Adam was his son, in a sense, the one who reflected his image, the one who partnered with him in ruling the world. And, and he said to Adam, look, don't eat that one tree, and the day you eat of it, you will what? Surely die the death sentence and Adam was expelled from the garden of Eden just as Israel was expelled from the land of Canaan and so we've lived in hostility toward God and that's the story of the human race we are all the stubborn and rebellious sons and daughters when it comes to how we've responded to God's law Um, all of us are that's why Jesus told the story of the prodigal son that's why everyone can relate to that story (laughs) yeah that's me yeah, that's, that's it. I, I love what Ken Davis was saying about, you know, I was a little bit rebellious. I didn't want to follow God, so I decided to become an engineer. You know, and we can be rebellious in so many ways. You can be a stubborn and rebellious child by getting into addiction and going to jail and leaving a wild, promiscuous life. But, you know, it's possible to be a stubborn and rebellious child while going to a prep school and going to an Ivy and getting a really decent job and being successful and living in a gated community. You can be just as much ignoring God's honor and glory and living for yourself as if you went the other direction. Rebellion has all kinds of flavors to it. But at the root, it's I will not do what God says. I will live my own way. I will be stubborn and rebellious. And it brings death. It brings a dire consequence. There is a great debt of honor to be paid to God. Uh, you know, The other thing that's been in the news lately is the national debt, right? which now is at $14 trillion and they're trying to break, broker some deal and who knows what's going to happen with that. $14 trillion, that's a lot of money. I, uh, I can't even conceptualize it. Someone sent me an email yesterday with a visual of, of what $14 trillion is. 
and it's all based on $100 bills. If you take a $100 bill and you have $14 trillion worth of $100 bills, it's, it's a pile the size of a football field half as high as the Statue of Liberty. It's just a ridiculous amount of money. You're like, wow, we're doomed. You know, it's like, ah. Brothers and sisters, we owe God an infinite debt of love, worship, praise, and adoration. And it will someday, that debt will someday be called. And it's going to be, it's going to be paid either with an infinite punishment, which is what we call hell, or with an infinite sacrifice. And that's the amazing thing, is that God sent His Son, Jesus, the Son, the perfect Son, the infinite Son, to pay the infinite debt so that we could have our debts canceled and be forgiven and be righteous in Christ. And until you get this, until you see and say, I am the rebellious child. And my life of rejection of God and living on my own terms deserves an infinite punishment. Until you see that, you will never stand in awe at the announcement that Jesus Christ took the death penalty. The obedient son died for the disobedient sons and daughters and rose again until you see where you're at before God and honestly accept your dire and doomed condition, the gospel message of Jesus will not stir you. But once you see it and once you say, I have lived this way and I do deserve this, but God sent His Son for me, you will find yourself being one of those people who cry in church and raise your hands and, you know, because you're like, praise God! He saved me through the sacrifice of His own Son. And so my prayer for all of us, I pray for families, that God will help us all as families to honor fathers and mothers and all that. But I also pray for all of us that we will come to see both the great debt of praise that we owe God that is outstanding, the dire consequences that await us, but also the fact that Christ has paid that debt and that if we come to Christ, there is complete forgiveness in Him. Let's close with a quote. I, I uh, saw this online this week. got an email. It's from uh, one of my favorite uh, Bible scholars. His name is Don Carson. Just a phenomenal stu- uh, student of God's Word. But he wrote this. He said, if God, if God had perceived our greatest need was economic he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from Him, our profound rebellion, our death. And so, He sent us a Savior. Let's pray.